So this Thursday, uh, the Jays season starts, which, I mean, let's face it, come on, we know last season was disappointing, but this season's going to be different, right, Leafs fans? <laughs> it's going to be different. Um, you know, the thing with uh, when you've, you're, you, know, you go to a, watch your team play and you're, you know, you're a diehard fan and you're in the stadium as you start to see this dichotomy between the diehard followers and, you know, the, the bandwagon fans, and you particularly notice it when the team is losing or they start to get behind and uh, because you know some folks are like that's day to the bitter end and uh, other folks are like let's just beat traffic you know let's get home uh, you know this kind of thing and um, me I'm I'm like one of these um, gluttons for punishment I'm the rally cap guy I'm the guy who's like well they could still they could still pull this out and I'll stay up really late and you know I stayed up late and watched the Jays lose in the, you know, in the ninth inning like 20 times last year or something like that, whatever the, whatever the stats were. But, uh, but it did pay off this one time where they were down six runs, the bottom of the ninth, biggest comeback in the Blue Jays franchise history. Steve Pierce hits this grand slam home run and a whole bunch of other things happen. They come back, they win the bottom of the ninth. It was amazing. But every other time it was a, a stratospheric letdown. Um, today is... Palm Sunday on the historic church calendar. It's when we all avert our attention to, you know, Matthew 21, which is our text for today, that where Jesus is coming in and there's these throngs of fans cheering for him. It's probably one of the greatest accounts of flip-flopping in world history because we know that those who are waving those palm branches on Palm Sunday saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Son of David, um, Within a week, we're yell, also yelling, crucify him. And so, uh, this is a familiar passage. Historically, uh, on the church calendar, again, it leads into Passion Week or Holy Week, where, we're, where our, our gaze starts to just narrow and narrow and narrow down to this last week of, of Christ's life before he goes to the cross. And, uh, and there's a glorious uh, uh, picture of God's in, incredible love for us through this whole thing. And this morning, as we look at Matthew 21... I'm going to read the first 17 verses, um, and we're going to look and see uh, the goodness of God's love towards us today through this text. Matthew chapter 21, the first 17 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, a foal, the beast of burden. The disciples went, and they did as Jesus directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put uh, on them their cloaks, and Jesus sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him, they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame 
came to Jesus in the temple and healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to Jesus, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You've prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. This is God's word. As we unfold this text this morning, we we really want to focus in on three things and explore them and and see how they're such good news for us. And uh, those three things can be summed up in this, this this sentence, today's sermon in a sentence, which is that Jesus is a king who confronts us. And he establishes kingdom in a way that's counterintuitive to us. And then he extends his grace and he restores us. That's what we want to look at today. He's a king that confronts us. He establishes kingdom in a way that's counterintuitive to us. And then in the end, he offers this incredible grace that restores us. So let's look at this first thing. How is it that Jesus is a king who confronts us? We like hipster Jesus. Jesus who's not judgy Jesus. Jesus that for the outcast and the refugee and the downtrodden. And um, that is Jesus. That is who he is. But what about this aspect of Jesus that is very confronting. This text is actually a very confronting text, which I'll show you in a minute. Um, Jesus being incredibly controversial. And I'll tell you, it's, this, it's like this. When you read through the Gospels and look at Jesus' life, you find that often he didn't want people to make a big deal of his, of his miracles. He often said to people, don't say anything about this. You'll recall those moments in, throughout the Gospels where Jesus would perform the miracle and move on. And he didn't, it was like he didn't want them to interfere with his, with his ministry, with his agenda, with his messianic agenda, with his timing. He, he was uh, fulfilling the call uh, on his life as the Messiah. And so he, quite often, when people were making a big deal, he was saying, don't make a big deal. Here, though, everybody's making a big deal, and he welcomes it. He's not trying to shush the people. and it, it, Something has shifted significantly. Because up until this point, he's like, you know, go, go and don't tell anyone. And now, the whole city is going crazy, calling him the Messiah, and he's fine with this. So what shift, that's pretty controversial. And he's, he's confronting everyone uh, with something. In verse 9, where they say, Hosanna, that, that cry is a, um, that's a messianic cry. It's, it's God save us. And so they're calling Jesus God, the whole city. God save us. Hosanna, son of David. It's all, it's messianic language. It's, you know, uh, this uh, Davidic kind of language. So Jesus is a king who confronts us because he claimed to be God and he claims to come to forgive us of all of our sin. And if that's true and he's who he says he is and the whole city is saying Hosanna to the king and he's saying, that's right, I'm the king. What's he confronting? He's, he's only giving us two options here. He's saying, I'm the king, therefore you have to bend your knee. If I'm the king, you can't be the king. You see, they already had a king, right? Herod was the king. They had a, there was a a king. There was a ruler, so to speak, sorry. There was nobody on the throne of David, but there was a ruler. So when Jesus comes and says, I'm the king, remember at his birth, they already had a king, Herod. And now Herod is threatened because, well, if he's the king, then I can't be the king. And now here Jesus is coming into the city saying, I'm the king, but they already have a ruler and it's Rome. 
And it's all of the and and it's all of those that Rome has put in place, right? And so Jesus is coming, saying, "I'm the king." He's confronting everybody's idea of who the, who the real ruler is. Is it's incredibly controversial. There's only two two options: he's the Lord, or he's the lunatic, right? The great writer C.S. Lewis wrote about that. He's, he's either he's a lunatic, or he's a liar, or he's the Lord. And so Jesus is very confrontational by coming into the city and saying, "Yeah, that's right. Uh, I am the king." You have two options here. To the whole city, you can crown me or, or, or you can kill me. That's all he leaves us with. I was listening to a teacher by, uh, teaching by a lady named Barbara Boyd who was talking on lordship in the context of this, um, this idea of Jesus' lordship and being a king that confronts because the disposition of the human heart is, oh, wait a minute, I'm kind of lord. I'll call the shots in my life. Jesus comes in as king, and what does that mean? And, and Barbara Boyd said it this way. She said... Um, my name is Barbara Boyd. You can't say to me, come in, Barbara, stay out, Boyd. That doesn't work for me. And neither then uh, can we say, come in, Savior, stay out, Lord. Come in, Helper, stay out, King. You remember, again, borrowing from C.S. Lewis, you remember that he wrote these Chronicles of Narnia. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this one well-known book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in it, they're describing Aslan, who is the great lion. But of course, at this point, the children had never met Aslan. They didn't know Aslan was a lion. They're just hearing this name, Aslan. And Susan, at one point, um, she says, oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is the lion, the great lion. So Susan says, well, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's a good king, I tell you. And you know, when C.S. Lewis was describing Aslan that way, of course this was an allegory, his way of talking about Jesus. He's good. He's the good king. He's the king of grace who's coming into Jerusalem. But he's not safe. He comes into Jerusalem and he's saying, I'm the king. Which means you got to crown me or you have to kill me. What are you going to do with Jesus? What do we do with this historical Jesus? And so uh, he confronts us. But he doesn't just come and confront us in a way that you would, historically speaking, looking back on conquering kings that would come into nations to take them over the way that they would confront, and the way that they would bring their kingdom. Which leads us to the second thing we want to look at, which is how is it that Jesus established his kingdom in a way that's counterintuitive to us. Kids, if you look down at your notes, that word counterintuitive, it means in a way you didn't expect. If something's counterintuitive, it's like it's the opposite of kind of what you were thinking. So how did Jesus bring his kingdom in a way that was really ultimately the opposite of kind of what we were thinking? Well, he comes in on this donkey. This is very intentional. It's actually a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. It's a 500-year-old prophecy. It's a messianic. Everybody, everybody knew this. Uh, the folks in Jerusalem would have known this prophecy, and hence they're, they're shouting these messianic things. It was, it was this great, great paradox of both insight and misunderstanding. This great insight that, that's like this, they're using this Davidic language, the Messiah has come, great insight, but great misunderstanding on what they thought the Messiah was actually up to. And so Jesus is, of course, um, coming in a way that nobody expects. When they say son of David and they say, uh, Hosanna, that has implications. Son of David has ruling implications. Hosanna has saving implications. And then, of course, five days later, they're saying crucify him. 
he's coming in, he's going to bring his kingdom, he's bringing it in a way that they don't expect, and, they don't, and, and so that's why there's this, there's this huge shift between Palm Sunday and uh, shouting Hosanna and crucify him, which comes about a week later. Because when they're shouting Hosanna, Jesus is the king um, that they think is going to, you know, ful- fulfill their dreams and their plans, the, the great plans they have for God. And then Jesus comes and does something that's the opposite of what they thought, and so they're realizing, okay, well, Jesus is on his own agenda, not my agenda, and so Jesus is, says he's the king, but he's not really the king that I want. And this is the dilemma that they're, uh, that they're, that they're all in when this is happening. So he comes in on this donkey, and it's actually a striking contrast, because in the ancient world, it was very common that a conquering king would come into a city, but he would be dressed like a warrior astride a war horse. So let's think about what everybody would expect and what Jesus actually did. You're expecting Thor on a stallion, but you're getting an unarmed civilian on a donkey. You're expecting this majestic picture of of war, but you're getting this humble picture of sacrifice. It's actually comical, the picture of Jesus on this. It doesn't even say it's a full-grown donkey. It talks about it being... You know, the, the, the donkey and this colt, these small little animals that Jesus is on. I was in Guatemala years ago on a mission uh, trip, and on one day we had a day off, and they said, we're going to go horseback riding. Well, whenever we got the horses, they weren't horses, they were these donkeys. And they weren't just donkeys, they were very small donkeys. And we had these tall teenage guys on these donkeys, their, 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 their feet, um, really, they could have almost just stood like this and touched the ground, some of the tall guys. So they're on the donkeys, they had to arch their feet up like this so that their feet weren't touching the ground, and they're bouncing along. It was like a cartoon. It was embarrassing, actually, for the guy. They, you should have seen their faces. It was, they weren't like the Marlboro, well, how, how do you say that, Marlboro man, Marlboro, blah, blah, Marlboro man, they weren't like that guy. It didn't look. It was comical. And Jesus comes in, and it's not what they expect. Now, spoiler alert: if you read the book of Revelation, he comes on a quite a different horse, and it's a quite a different image. But right here, it's incredibly humbling. It's not what they expect at all. Um, normally, when a king would come to bring deliverance to his people, it didn't look the way that Jesus was coming to bring deliverance to his people. It's this very deliberate and clear fulfillment of Scripture. You know, he's, he's coming to rule and he's coming to save, but it's not like anybody would have expected. And kids, if you look down at your notes again, you'll see what I mean by this. It's that Jesus did not usher in his kingdom by taking power, by asserting power. He did it by laying down his power. He didn't do it by killing. He did it by dying. He didn't do it by coming in and shedding the blood of his enemies. He did it by coming in and allowing his own blood to be shed for the forgiveness of his enemies. It's the exact opposite of what the ancient world would have expected. If you study world history, you will find that every nation, without exception, including this one, without exception, is a nation because at some point in our history, somebody came in and after wiping the blood from their swords and taking what was not their own, They planted crops and they started civilization. Every country, without exception, has a dark past. 
Because every nation, without exception, has a leader and a ruler who came in and established their kingdom rule by exerting their power over others. And Jesus Christ is the only king in all of world history who asserted his kingdom, not by killing, but by dying, not by asserting power, by laying power down. And that's the shocking, striking contrast between what Israel expected him to do, but it was the lens through which they read every prophecy and understood every prophecy, what they thought the Messiah had come to do, and what the Messiah actually came, to, came and did. It's radical and counterintuitive, this amazing picture. Palm Sunday, it shines a spotlight on the age-old mismatch between what we think we need and what God provides. And so Jesus triumphed through weakness, and we receive salvation by confessing our weakness. Salvation is not for those who think that they're good, or strong, or moral, or righteous. Salvation is for everyone who comes to the realization that according to the perfect standard of God, none of us are good, moral, and righteous. That Jesus Christ, the one who came in and laid everything down, was the only one by God's standard who was is, who is good and moral and righteous. And so Jesus goes into Jerusalem with an incredible picture of weakness, and we all receive salvation through this incredible place of weakness, whereby he becomes a radical source of strength to us and in our, and in our souls. And this historical account of Palm Sunday and the response of the crowds, Hosanna, followed by, followed by, you know, a few days later, crucify him. It reveals the fundamental flaw in why many of us reject God. It's that we don't want a Messiah, we want a mass God. We've already got an idea of what we want our life to be like and what it should be like. And we want God to get behind and, and endorse everything that we're up to as our mascot. But what we need is not a God who will endorse all of our great ideas. What we need is a Messiah. We don't need a mascot. We need a God who we can go and we can find great rest in, who can recalibrate our souls and our hearts in this world that is at great unrest. And what God does in your life in the short run is always very confusing. Just like what Je Jesus going into Jerusalem on a donkey, the exact opposite of the picture of what the ancient world would have expected. And of course, even though they were excited about it on Palm Sunday, their excitement very quickly turned to disdain when God didn't do what they thought he'd do. And it's always, God is always confusing to us in the short run. But as we look back through the thousands and thousands of years of, of God's uh, redemption history, we find that everything that God does is glorious in the long run. He's faithful in the long run. He's wiser than we are in the long run. He's generous uh, in the long run. He's doing a saving work in the long run that we can't grapple with in the short run. Because of the pain and the frustration and the hurt and the sorrow and the way that we want things to turn out, where we, like them, are very quick to be like, Hosanna, Hosanna, yay! And then the next, oh, crucify him. God, you didn't do what I thought you'd do. We're them. And Jesus has come for us in his radical and his great grace. It's amazing. He goes straight to the temple. Verse 10 and 11. Matthew takes us straight there, the way he writes the gospel. He, he comes in, and right after this triumphal entry, he goes straight to the temple. And he clears the place out. He's flipping tables. This is not the Jesus that we, we, you know, we, we expect. I remember in high school, you know, I did a painting of, of Jesus in the temple flipping tables. And, so that we can, and I, I wanted to paint a different kind of picture of Jesus. And I painted it like a comic book kind of a thing, which isn't 
original at all. But at the time, and then, you know, I thought I was being pretty original. And I had a flipping tables. It's not the picture that you expect. But at the time when I painted that painting, I, I, I misunderstood the motive. I had him, he looked like Wolverine. His hair was all flying and his and stuff was, and um, but what I missed, see, I, what I kind of depicted though in my painting was this violent outburst of anger. Violent outbursts of anger are weakness. Right? Every time any of us have a violent outburst of anger, it's not strength. It's, it's utter weakness. And Jesus did not clear the temple in a moment of uh, weakness. It's not, it's not just violent, unbridled anger that he's doing. It's, it's this judicial act that's being motivated by uh, not, not, not just this, this kind of a sinful rage, anger as, as we would think about it. There's something much bigger going on here. It's not just the unjust money exchange that's going on here. Um, because they had always done this. Right? We know that they were cheating the people and they were they were, you know, the profit margins. Or, you know, we understand, we look back at the history, for those of you who might be new to the scriptures or to Christian faith, um, this might seem new to you, but if you look back at it, I mean, they were always buying and selling things for the sacrifices at the temples. People had to travel for days to get there. So people weren't always necessarily always bringing things with them. They would come and, and buy their sacrifices. I mean, this was always done. And so, yes, they're ripping the people off and they're charging more than what they should have Costed, and they were breaking the law, and that was outrageous, and Jesus was righteously indignant about that. That's true. But there's something bigger than just, we look at it like modern North Americans, and we look at it and we go, oh, the profit margins, I can't believe it. That's outrageous. Have you ever traveled to another country, and then you ran out of money, and you had to go and get some more money exchanged, and then you go and you see the exchange rate? A tear starts forming in your eye as you're doing the math, and you're just like, this is outrageous. Yeah, that was happening. It definitely was. But more, more so than that, the Messiah comes into Jerusalem and he does what nobody expects. He threatens the sacrificial system. Nobody expected that. They expected him to come in. This is what they all thought. The Messiah is going to ride into Jerusalem and he's going to overthrow Rome. Yeah. Nobody thought the Messiah is going to come into Jerusalem, and he's going to overthrow our ceremonial worship service. He's going to come in and he's going to overthrow the sacrificial system in the temple. Nobody saw that coming. Everybody expected him to attack Rome. Nobody expected him to do that. Jesus flipped the tables because he was the ultimate sacrifice coming to replace the system. He was the one, the gracious king who comes to give us what we need, not what we expect. He's not a mascot to our political agendas. And this is what he does. So he comes, he's a king that comes and confronts us, and then he comes and he establishes his kingdom in a way that's counterintuitive to us. And then finally this morning, we're going to look at this great grace that he offers to restore us. So how does he offer this great grace to restore us? To restore us, what does he do? Imagine you're there. And you're witnessing this. And there's money bouncing around on the stone floor. And it's rolling in all the cracks. And there's chickens and... Well, not chickens. There's pigeons flying around. And there's, there's cattle being herded out of the temple court. There's animals running everywhere as Jesus is, is, is overthrowing this sacrifice, uh, these, these tables. 
and there's people running everywhere, and they're trying to herd the animals, and it's just a big mess of chaos. And then the dust settles, and there's only one figure left standing there, Jesus. And you would be wondering in that moment, if you were a person who came to the temple to offer your sacrifice, which is precisely why everybody came to purchase their sacrifices, you would be standing there, your whole entire life being taught your sins cannot be forgiven without a sacrifice. You're going to die in your sin if you don't provide a sacrifice. And now there is no sacrifices because Jesus chased them all away. And you're standing there and you're wondering, what am I going to do about my sin? Where is the sacrifice? And it would be standing right in front of you. Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, the one who came to replace the system, replace the temple, replace it all, the one who came to do what it is that none of us could do, he came to, he came to be that perfect Passover lamb. They were there at the Passover to purchase the sacrifice, and the ultimate sacrifice was standing in front of them. Jesus didn't just cleanse the temple. He came to replace it. He didn't just straighten out the sacrificial system. He replaced it. He's greater than the high priest, greater than the temple. The ceremonial laws were all provisional. They were all temporary. And so Jesus came to meet the impossible standard of God's law and to point us all to the great need for his grace. And to borrow from Dr. Matthias, who's a professor of philosophy and religion at Grandview College in Iowa, I'll say it this way. God is so for you as your defender. He was willing to be against himself as your accuser. And this is profound and amazing, this great and radical grace that Jesus came. He replaced all of these things. Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10 look back on the Passover, uh, this Passover, uh, and they give us insight into what Jesus did. They look back on the implications of Palm Sunday, Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10. They look back on the implications of that Palm Sunday, and the Hebrew writer says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. In Hebrews 10, it says that the priest had to stand in the temple every day, atoning for sacrifices. Standing every day, because there was no end to the people's sin. There was no end to the need of sacrifice. And Hebrews 10 tells us that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father because his sacrifice was ultimate and it was final for you, church. And so it's because of that we don't live a life of sacrifice before God. We actually live a, a life of great freedom before God and sacrifice towards one another because the ultimate sacrifice has already been paid. This is the good news of the gospel for us. It's what fuels our willingness to live life of sacrifice for others. Is because we live in this rest, we live in this abundant, uh, uh, this abundant life, this spiritual reality that was brought because of Jesus. God rested after creation, and God the Son uh, rested after accomplishing our recreation, and God the Spirit draws you and I here Sunday in and Sunday out to rest. We worship Jesus, the Lord of rest, the one who went in and cleared out the temple and cleared out all the systems, everything that was insufficient to make the one, the one sufficient sacrifice for us. And so, the crowds thought on that Palm Sunday that Jesus came into the city to put everything right with Rome. But Jesus actually came into the city to put us right with God. 
And as I close, I'm going to point something out that was brought to my attention by a a great research theologian, D.A. Carson. There's a very quiet miracle in all of this. It's really good news for you and I. And when you read, if you go back and look at the, the text that we read this morning, you'll notice that those animals that Jesus was riding on had never been ridden. They were unbroken. Some of you in here uh, do horseback riding, or, some, or you have. As I've talked with some of you guys, there's a stables just outside Waterloo here, outside the city, and some of you guys go and you do some horseback riding. If you do horseback riding, you know, not that I know, I'm, they, they tell me, <laughs> those who do it, you can't get on an unbroken animal and ride it. In fact, you can't even get on a nervous animal and ride it. In fact, there's some animals that if you get on them and something, if there's a loud commotion or motion, it'll throw you off. Jesus is riding into the city on an unbroken animal, and the city's going crazy. They're shouting and screaming and yelling and waving palm branches, and they're coming and they're they're putting cloaks down and they're dropping things at the feet of the animal. You know, we put blinders on animals so that they don't throw us off. Jesus is coming into the city and everything around that donkey is utter chaos. Well, not to insult you, but we're like those donkeys, you know. We live in a world that's kind of in utter chaos. There's no end to the restlessness and the commotion. None of you have a commotion-free life. Nobody is going to go home this afternoon and sit on their couch and say, Thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you, God, for your grace. And thank you, God, for my commotion-free life. Nobody, you'll pay those first two parts, but nobody's praying that, that last part. But, you know, under the hand of the Master, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, our Savior, He quiets our souls. He, this quiet little miracle in the middle of all of this commotion as this quiet animal goes into the city under the hand of the master, under the hand of the Lord of rest. Even, even a jackass can find rest under the Lord of rest, which is really great news for me. I don't know about you. But under the hand of the Lord of rest quiets us in the midst of all of this commotion. The good news of this gospel In the midst of all of this, an unbroken animal remains totally calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature and stills the storm. Jesus is the Lord of all, and under his hand, nothing but harmony and peace comes about. And this is the foreshadowing of the healing and the completion of all nature. You know, you and I aren't going to live commotion-free lives, but that Palm Sunday gives us a picture of the Messiah who comes and he confronts us in a way that we didn't expect. He says, bow your knee. Because there's only one king. And then he brings his kingdom into our hearts and our lives in a way that we don't expect. Not by exerting his power and oppressing us, but by laying his power down and giving his life for us. And then he extends his great grace to us here. The Lord of all creation. This great grace that will restore us. This picture, this quiet miracle, this picture of the ultimate restoration, that ultimate peace that's coming that you and I get to enjoy and have a taste of today. In a world at great unrest, Jesus Christ, the King, will return. And in his time, he will restore all things and he'll bring rest. Let's pray.